We uh, started this fake news series a few weeks ago, and I quite honestly don't know if anybody's getting anything out of it, but the pastors are having a blast creating these, uh, these videos. But today, we're going to look at, uh, and honestly, it's going to be a primer, a brief treatment of the subject of universalism. And for some of you, you, you have a lot of exposure and expertise in that particular topic. Um, but we're going to talk about that as the fake news of our culture. We, we, we don't want to get into the news media. That's not what this series is about. This is about cultural truth uh, that conflicts with God's truth. And there seems to be plenty of that going around these days. And um, I wanted to share some fake news, some cultural truth that's a little bit dated, as in 3,500 years ago. Uh, this is your history moment of the morning. 3,500 years ago, as God's people spent approximately 400 years um, in Egypt, the Egyptians practiced what was very commonly practiced, uh, universally practiced, in fact, in that era, uh, polytheism, which simply means there are many paths to many gods. And scholars agree that perhaps there's no other culture in the history of humanity that worshiped and served more deities greater, to greater or lesser degrees than the Egyptian culture. I wanted to just show you a picture of just some of the deities because every one of these Egyptian deities had a, a physical form, representation, often a combination of a human and an animal. And so, uh, as I say, up to 2,000, some scholars believe, 2,000 deities. And of course now, if you can just project yourself back about 3,500 years, you as a household would determine which of the deities you'd serve. Uh, many of you would have uh, uh, wooden figures, stone figures resembling some of these particular um, idols, the household gods. And we read about those, we, we come into contact with them throughout the early Old Testament. But I wanted to just, you know, present you with this uh, possibility. Imagine yourself as Israelites now for generations in a culture that's polytheistic, and you have endorsed and embraced many of the gods of the land. I, I've got a partial list of uh, some of these gods I wanted to show to you today, and um, if you're taking notes, this will really be a problem. But, you know, th some of these gods... Um, and again, I think there's 110, for those of you that need to know this and are counting along with, there's probably be about 110 of these. Out of 1,500 to 2,000, there's the goddess Bess, who protected, it's a B-E-S, not B-E-S-S, who protected women at childbirth, ladies. If you're an Egyptian or perhaps even an Israelite living in Egypt, wouldn't you want a safe childbirth? Of course, and so you would worship that particular god. One of the major gods was a god named Hathor, uh, one of the most important goddesses, uh, linked with the sky, the sun, sexuality and motherhood, music and dance, foreign lands, I mean, and the afterlife. To worship Hathor was to uh, worship one of the uh, most dominant goddesses of the day. There's Ma'at. Uh, we learned about this when we went to Egypt, the god of order, actually the goddess of order, justice and truth. Pick a god, any god. Pick several, because this is worship Egyptian style. Every one of these gods and goddesses have a physical representation which you would find lined up on your mantle in your living room. 
and routinely you'd bow down, you'd worship, you'd offer sacrifices too. Into that culture, more deities, arguably, than any other culture in the history of humanity speaks the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through a leader named Moses. And what this God says to begin with, we find in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, summarized, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I want you to embrace how radical a concept, a theological concept that was into that culture. A little later, the prophet Isaiah said this on God's behalf. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. I don't see any wiggle room in that statement. Today the issue is universalism, many paths to the same God. But the Old Testament's fundamental theological purpose was to clarify this single truth, there's one God. There is one God. And the people of Israel had a choice to make. 3,500 years ago, and from that moment to this one, we still struggling make the, making the same choice. Do we take the fake news of culture, or do we take the truth of God's word? Now, now today, we're not gonna be susceptible to these earthen deities, wooden carvings, stone statues. Uh, that's not how we roll in contemporary America. Instead, our potential idolatry is a little bit more subtle and a whole lot more acceptable. It's tempting to bow down to the God or goddess of self and self-indulgence. I personally at times struggle with the God of recreation and sport. Um, insert your own personal priorities. Nothing wrong with the priorities until they usurp the primary place of God in our lives. And so from that moment to this one, we struggle keeping God in the place of preeminence in our lives. But the good news, you heard the fake news, the good news this morning is this God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit, this God who is eternal, eternally creating, eternally sustaining, who continues to deliver people just like us and save us, He's this close to being worshiped and proclaimed. And that's where we begin today. We have the most unbelievable opportunity in all of time in history, not because you're at TFRC on a Sunday, but because we as followers of Jesus have opportunity to proclaim to the living God our love, our honor, and our praise. Sometimes I think we miss that point in what we do. We just show up and we sing and we write notes and then we talk. And we, of course we have coffee. Uh, 3,500 years ago, this would have been the most radical theological concept anyone had ever heard. And we, my friends, get a chance to worship today together the one true God. Are you ready? 
It's a pretty big deal. Hey, let's pray and we'll start. Father in heaven, how often we come into this place and fail to recognize the amazing opportunity to come before you, an eternal God, the author of all living things, the sustainer of life itself, the deliverer of people, the savior of people just like us, and we have an opportunity to worship you one-on-one and corporately as well. And so, Father, we thank you so much today for the good news of Jesus that blots out and wipes away all the fake news through the centuries, the polytheistic fake news, the universalistic fake news. Lord, we worship you in spirit and in truth because of what you've done for us on a cross in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You dress anything up to make it look believable and you may believe it. And that's where we find ourselves living culturally today. And again, I've said earlier, this is not just meant to be a slam of media. But uh, what we have to address, folks, is the reality that cultural truth um, is portrayed as absolute truth when, in fact, it's contradictory to God's truth. And uh, in our prep for this as pastors, we're really, really concerned that the people of TFRC take an entirely new look at your treatment of God's Word, of Scripture, because as never before, we need to be uh, devoted to this book, uh, uh, scouring passages and books of the Bible for answers to the questions that the culture is asking, but often uh, following up with flawed answers to. So I really want to encourage you to take a new look, a fresh look at your use of Scripture, because it is ultimately God's authoritative Word, and it's why we do what we do here. And um, just want to encourage you to do that, because it is the culture's fake news that often today is contradicting uh, the good news of, the, of Scripture. Uh, today we're going to read, honestly, one of the pivotal statements of Jesus while he was on the planet from John chapter 14. Our topic today, we're going to do a brief primer on universalism and uh, we're no, not going to dive into the deep end of that, but just hopefully expose you to enough of it and, and underscore the fact that this is a growing phenomenon, growing it's growing more and more acceptable uh, culturally and within Christian churches for this particular belief. But the passage of the morning is John chapter 14, 1 to 7, and Alexis Pearson is going to be reading for us. Alexis, if you would head on up. And uh, what we do here to symbolize the centrality of God's Word, the authority of God's Word, is uh, we stand face in the middle of the room. So if you're able to stand, and if you have Bibles, you can certainly open them up. John 14, 1 to 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know me, my Father, as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Good deal. Thanks so much, Alexis. You can have a seat. Again, just to reiterate, Fake news is cultural truth that conflicts with God's truth. 
And this is our fifth week, five out of six weeks of the series. I wanted to just put up on the screen for review. If you haven't been here for several of these weeks, we've tried to contrast what is cultural fake news with the good news of Scripture. And you can read those uh, for yourselves. But in each week, there's, there's a stark contrast between what the cultural dynamics, cultural priorities might be, and what the biblical priorities might be. And uh, we live in a time, we've also discussed this repeatedly, we live in a day that's increasingly post-Christian. And I've had a few people say, what exactly is post-Christian? So I went to the ultimate source of truth, Webster's Dictionary, and, and have this definition for you. And this is the uh, Webster's New World College Dictionary definition for post-Christian. Of or designating the modern era regarded as a time in which the West, especially Europe, has moved away from its Christian traditions and become fundamentally secular. If you take a look at that for just a second, it's a fascinating description because it raises up Europe as illustration A of post-Christian. Some of you are familiar with uh, Western Europe. You've been there before, you take trips over there. The point of this series is as Europe has become, so is America becoming. And you only have to ask the question in another five to seven years, will the definition include Europe and the United States? But it's that last line, I think, that helps us define post-Christ, this post-Christian era. We move away from Christian traditions and become fundamentally secular. There in a statement is the definition of post-Christian. Now, here's the fake news for the day. Already gave you a little fake news from 3,500 years ago. But the fake news, culturally speaking, is this. Many paths lead to the same God. It's, a, it's as old as the second century A.D., quite frankly, this introduction of universalism. There's a heretic named Origen who introduced the topic almost 2,000 years ago. Um, but a post-Christian culture, we, we see, is increasingly pluralistic. We're increasingly a multi-faith culture. And not that that in a democracy is a bad or evil thing, but it has some implications. I don't know how many of you are Baskin-Robbins fans. You know they just opened a new store downtown with Cloverleaf ice cream too? Have you been there yet? That's really, that's irrelevant to our chat today, but it's really great ice cream. I don't know, anyway. Um, Baskin and Robbins. What's your favorite flavor at the count of three? Yell it out. Ready? One, two, three. See, I told you so. Uh, Religion today in America is very similar to Baskin Robbins because I would never criticize your choice of flavor for the most part. And you would never dare criticize mine. It's my truth, it's my opinion, it's my perspective. And therein lies the beginning of the the challenge, that when we approach religion in the same way we approach our ice cream selection, we've got a problem. Um, Understand this, universalism, again, not an old, not not necessarily a new phenomenon, came around in the second century, It it came back into vogue a little bit in the 19th century, but is increasingly popular today is a natural byproduct of the secular version of the value of tolerance, which suggests all religions must be of equal validity. All spiritual paths must lead up to the same mountaintop called God. You see the logic, it's only logical. 
if we buy into it, cultural tolerance, we'll buy into universalism. Immediately, that's the point of departure. Now, I want to give you a couple of statistics, and again, I'm always sensitive these days when I quote statistics, you're saying, hey, that's fake news. I think this is fairly safe news. This is from the Barna Institute. Barna is to Christian surveys what Gallup is to secular surveys. Here's a couple of nuggets to chew on, or some ice cream to chew on. A recent study concluded the belief or concluded that 40% of Americans believe all people will experience the same outcome after death regardless of their religious beliefs. 40% of us, this is not the church, this is America, will all experience the same uh, outcome after death. Close to half of Americans today, and this is where you can see the drift, and the drift will continue. It will not stop, it will continue Close to 50% of Americans agree that if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others, they'll earn a place in heaven. Now, those are not majority reports today, but if you saw the statistical development through the last two or three decades, you'll see a very clear trajectory. And that's why we're not being doom and gloom here today. We're just saying we've got to deal with this, address it, and bring back one life at a time, people into the Christian faith. Uh, Many in the U.S. assume that all religions are basically the same so that all beliefs are equally as valid. And this growing attitude then is we should never be, we can never be judgmental of any religion, idea, or person. And again, we're called not to judge, God judges, but be discerning. By refusing to call anything right or wrong, Um, What universalism does in a not-so-subtle way is it not only cancels our need for Christ's sacrifice on a cross, who would need that? But also ignores the consequences of this archaic concept called sin. You remember that word? Some of you over the age of 70? Sin. And so in a culture of tolerance, cultural tolerance, Sin will be uh, minimalized, it will be marginalized and and relativized. In your daily conversations with your buddies, with your friends, coworkers, fellow students, how often does the word sin come up? Not very often. And I'm not saying you bring the Bible and throw it around like a hammer on people, I'm just saying one of the evidences of universalism is the loss of this concept called repentance and the reality of sin. In fact, sin, I would argue, today is politically incorrect. An argument for universalism is that a good and loving God would never ever condemn people to the eternal torment of hell, right? We we struggle with that, perhaps. Those people in darkest corners of the earth that have never, we, we struggle with that concept but a reality to ignore the justice of God negates the mercy of God. We can't have one without the other. Universalism emphasizes God's mercy at the expense of God's justice. And we really struggle with that these days, with the secular worldview that we continue to adopt. Someone once said, all religions are basically the same. They're a source of guilt with different holidays. That makes sense to me. 
The fake news, almost a majority report, is many paths lead to the same God. Here's the good news. And this is just not Bible news. It's just not church news. This is truly great news, that there's one path that leads to the true God. And if the Old Testament message, theologically speaking, was very simple, one path to one God, the New Testament message is, let me tell you about the path, because the path goes directly through the way, the truth, and the life. Look at John 14, 6, and it's a great statement. If you've been around the church a lot, you've heard a lot of scripture read, uh, this is one of those statements that's very popular, and yet in a day uh, in which universalism continues to be on the uptick, this verse becomes absolutely central in defending our faith and the exclusivity of Christianity versus all the other world religions. Jesus easily, easily could have set the record straight. And by the way, I go back to what I said earlier. God could have set the record straight. In a polytheistic culture, God could have said, hey, I'm another one of those major deities, but it's up to you. He doesn't go there. The entire uh, scope of the Old Testament points to one God in a culture of multiple gods. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, you'd get a tremendous pushback from anyone in Egypt 3,500 years ago. I would argue you'd get a big pushback at work tomorrow if you made the same claim. Um, Moms and dads, parents of young children, understand the drift that your kids are going to experience more and more the, the commonly held belief that there cannot be an exclusivistic, exclusive path to God but we all have to get along. And I want to say this respectfully. I don't I understand. We're at somewhat of a, a hinge in American history with regards to our theology. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus could have said, I'm a way, I'm a truth, and I can give you life. The follow-up statement is, no one comes to the Father except through me. One of the problems with universalism is the exclusive claims of Old and New Testament combined. Old Testament, one path to God. New Testament, one path to God with Jesus as the source. And it's in this verse and many, many others that Jesus claims he's the exclusive path. Um, But again, it's not like we want to keep this to ourselves. We're not the frozen chosen. Who's God willing to save? Anyone and everyone that he calls to himself. Regardless of race, gender, background, sports allegiance, whatever. In Galatians 3, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You're all one. There's no dividing marks in the kingdom of heaven, in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet not all are saved just by osmosis, but by believing in another path to another deity. Not all will be saved. How are we saved? Very clearly the New Testament, again, redundantly for the sake of clarity, says only those who believe in Jesus. Here's a verse in Romans 10 that blends the inclusiveness of the call of God with the exclusiveness of the message of the gospel. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, okay? And then this, 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, specifically Jesus, will be saved. And so this flies in the face of a lot that you're going to hear in the years to come that there's no way Christianity has the corner on truth or authority. There's no reason why Christians have a right to uh, try to proselytize those outside the faith. See, this is where we get back to the primacy of God's Word. Uh, In just a short time, we are going to celebrate the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. I know, isn't that exciting? Isn't that cool? Um, I'm not going to steal anybody else's thunder when it happens, but I'm saying that, okay, so it's not a big deal for you. Let's go to Baskin-Robbins illustrations instead. Um, 500 years ago, the Reformers uh, began taking another look at Scripture and recognized that that what was happening in the church was not aligning with what was happening, uh, what was taught in Scripture. And they never, they never intended a revolution, politically or theologically or spiritually, but it happened. Such is the power of God's word when it's taken seriously by people who proclaim to be followers in a culture that goes against the grain. Your, your commitment to God's word, by the way, will be more and more countercultural as the days go by. This book may be the most politically incorrect book you will own in the next decade. And I just want you to be prepared for that, excited about that. You're, you're part of a revolution that goes back to God's word. Christianity is unique. Honestly, unique among all other religions. It towers above other religions in several ways. See, every other religion suggests humanity must attempt somehow to reach up to God. Christianity says God reached down to humanity. It's only through God's grace and mercy, not effort, that we obtain God's favor. That is so ra- such a radical departure, even from the polytheistic cultures of Egypt. Neither Buddha, Confucius, or Allah do anything to bring their followers back into a right relationship with him. It's all up to, to uh, the individual. Furthermore, imagine this. Jesus claimed to be the one true God, eternal, triune. Wrap your arms around that one and followed up the claim with a bodily resurrection. No other world religion has that weirdness, revolutionary truth. No other religious figure throughout history has ever made any claim and accompanied it with such great power and authority. None. If you've ever studied comparative religions, you understand the uniqueness of Christianity. And maybe if we haven't, it'd be good for us to do that a little bit more. Most religions, world religions in particular, have evolved a system of penance that when their laws are broken, an offering or ritual or sacrifice to appease the wrath of the gods must be taken. The uniqueness of our faith is only Christianity has a way by which disobedient followers can be welcomed back into right relationship with this God. And get this, it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done for us. See, Christianity and the the equation of Old and New Testament required a sacrifice, and Jesus became the sacrifice. There's, again, many, many verses that describe it. Here's one, 1 Peter 2, 
24, and he himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. We're, we're made right with God. We're made righteous through someone dying on a cross for us. Folks, it's good news. It's amazing news. No other religion in the history of humanity has a God like our God who demonstrated his love for us the way he demonstrated it for you and for me. The reason we want to have the chat about universalism today, one path to the true God, is because the path, folks, leads us directly to that cross. You could argue it leads us through the cross to the empty tomb. That's another story for another day. That's even cooler, quite frankly. But our path to God lies directly through that cross. You know this story. I don't have to tell you the story for the first time. But I want the story to come alive in our hearts this morning, in our minds, recognizing there's nothing you can do to gain the favor of the God that we worship. This God of the universe the God who's eternally creating, who's creative and sustaining, who's delivered people like us for 4,000 years. What this moment proclaims when we come to have communion together, every time we do it, is that we have a personal faith through Jesus. You're gonna bump into this more and more, this universalistic thing, and it's gonna to be tougher and tougher to uh, stake your claim to Christianity as an exclusive faith. I just want to prepare you for that. It's often why we don't wanna talk about Christianity and its claims because it just seems like it goes against the grain of political correctness. And I'm just bringing it up today somewhat briefly, so maybe we need to study together a little bit more in depth uh, to be able to defend our faith, to be able to share our faith with love and grace as things move forward. But that's why coming together at this place becomes more and more significant is because when we understand the exclusive uh, story of Christianity, the cross, I hope, comes alive at an entirely different level. So um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to get ready to... Uh, come to the cross and celebrate the Last Supper together. But the good news of the gospel, folks, is you don't have to build a pantheon of regional deities out of wood, stone, or whatever, and put them on the mantle in your TV room or man cave. We worship the God of the universe in spirit and truth, and he's here, and he's here, and waiting for us to connect. Let's pray. Father, it's almost hard for us to grasp. Maybe it would be easier for us to grasp if we had local deities, regional deities, weather, earth, that we could bow down to 20 or 30 gods. But Lord, that's not the truth. That's the fake news. Lord, we come before you humbly yet boldly, the God of the universe, creator God, sustaining God, delivering God, healing God, because of what Jesus has done for us on a cross. 
And so in these next few moments, Lord, allow our faith in you to come alive. Uh, allow us to remember th- those, those uh, mountaintop moments when we truly were passionately committed to you or as we reflect back into those moments where we grew in you. And Lord, allow us to rekindle that passion again as we remember what it took for us to have a right relationship with you. God bless us in our next few moments together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.